Hello and welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I'm joined today by my guest, Kim Townsend. Kim and I first met while I was at AU as a student. Kim helped me get plugged into the community, meet different leaders, learn the areas and the streets better. And she assisted with a group that I was leading called Operation Foundation. That group essentially wanted to get more involved in the city, to learn more about our neighbors in the community, and we would also do service projects. So Kim, thank you for coming on and for uh, talking with me here today. It's great to have you on. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. Yes. We were talking before we started recording. When we first met, you were working on the community development for the city of Anderson, I believe. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And now you're actually the CEO of the Anderson Housing Authority. So I wanted to congratulate you on that promotion. How have you been uh, how have you been enjoying that role thus far? Oh, it's been great. It's it's good. Um, I did enjoy my years at the city, but there was always some um, a hierarchy that you would have to go through to get some things done. So um, I feel like I'm a hierarchy now <laughs> and I can kind of spread my wings and and plan um, vision here and get projects going and uh, it's a more seeing um, doing this work. So it's a whole different spectrum uh, from where I came from originally, but yeah, it's been, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. Good. Yeah. It had to be difficult to switch because you and I had also been talking about before we started recording that you had been with the city for almost 20 years before starting this new role. How's this transition been, you know, since changing? Yeah, I started my career. I was a secretary in the engineer's office, and then I kind of rose up and started um, working for the community. Um, on my 29th birthday, I, I was praying that by my 30th birthday, I wanted to know my purpose. And I was praying that mm. God mm. would show me what he wanted me to do, what what was his will for me, um, because I knew my heart desired to do more. And on my 30th, um, shortly after my 30th birthday, I was promoted to community development. And wow. I was like, that's my path um, to serve the community. And particularly with um, our disenfranchised or disadvantaged residents, low-income residents, um, single mothers, um, you know, just um, that whole gamut. So I've been blessed um, doing this work. And uh, and then, you know, then AU's um, student population was introduced in um, to me, and that just really... Um, it helped change a lot of the work or the direction that, you know, open AU up more to the community. They always existed in the community, but not outside of the walls that encompass, you know, their territory. So I think I was able to expose some youth to the plight of the city they're going to school in. 
Yeah, as one of those students, I want to thank you for the uh, for that connection. I do like the city of Anderson a ton, but I do think sometimes the city functions as the city itself and then the university and their separate entities. But I do think, uh, Kim, you are one of the people that helps build bridges between the two and connect people. Yeah, I, I was always thankful for that. Oh, yeah, it was just... Uh... You know, uh, one year, uh, might have been in 2011 or 2010, there was 500 green shirts out in the park and there's had been mowing and all kinds of stuff going on, a cookout and everything. But it was just an eye opener. But, but I think the thing that really touched me the most is that it started off a day of service and then um, one of the original young ladies um, from the group um, said, oh, a, a week, a day is not enough. We want to go for a whole week. And that's how Operation Foundation was born. A week of service instead of just an afternoon during orientation. I was so proud of that, that that really touched them. The service project touched those students to the point where they wanted to do more. So and I will tell you something interesting. Um, I did a small uh, amount of time working for the, the uh, juvenile uh, division out uh, the Madison County Youth Center. So I was working on a grant program that helped to reduce detention for these youth and offer alternatives. So I ended up putting together a choir working with um, Becky Chapel, who was the music instructor at AAU in New York uh, Seminary, um, the York, uh, uh, what is it, the Performing Arts, arts yes, yeah. Performing mm -hmm. Arts Center. So I ended up taking a group of juveniles out to AAU and I was part of their program and taught some songs and we went to, um, and they sang in front of judges and prosecutors from all over the state of Indiana. So I have a long history of working uh, with AU and um, doing things that to help enhance the youth in the community. Speaking of the performing arts, are you into music at all yourself? Are you a musician? So we, I come from a background of um, singers, musicians, mainly um, music, gospel music, so I've been a choir director. I've been, you know, I'm not a singer myself or a musician, but I can teach and just, you know, within my church and stuff like that. So, yeah. Very cool. How have you seen the city change over your career? Have you noticed any progress that's been made? Any big setbacks you've noticed, especially with the youth? I know you said you've been volunteering with the youth a lot. Um, and you've done a lot of work with them. How different are they now? Are there any similarities across time? Well, <clears throat> I think that uh, it seems a little harder to reach the youth because they are on a platform that does not involve us, you know, as adults. They are, yeah. you know, um, they don't communicate much unless it's through text or, or phones or Snapchat, those types of things. 
Um, I think it's a little bit um, troublesome for some of our youth today just to fit into some of those um, social circles. Um, the city as a whole, I feel, has not um, done well investing back into our youth. I think that when I go, I travel a lot for my job and you can always tell what, where communities prioritize. You look at roads, you look at housing, you look at the conditions of communities, you look at their youth opportunities and you know who's planning for the future versus those that are just trying to get by each day without a plan. I believe we fall into that category. We don't have a plan for our future. Um, and our plans, any plans that we do have, they don't involve youth. So I think we're behind, especially looking around at some of our surrounding communities. And I'm not talking about even Hamilton County, which everyone knows that that is like number one in the state. Um, but even some smaller towns in our county are really pushing and progressing um, forward. So I am a little um, disappointed at the condition of our city. I know a lot of work has gone into beautification, um, you know, collaborations, things like that, but they sometimes don't um, transcend over into new administrations. If a new administration gets in, they want to end everything that happened previously. Standing, um, but I do believe we have a lot of opportunity here. It's just how do we bring it all together and really start looking forward and making a plan going forward for the next five to 10, 15, 20 years. What is this going to look like here? Yeah, that's a great observation. Do you yourself have a plan for Anderson or what do you think a plan could look like? So my plan in my own little segment of, of uh, my contribution is um, housing. But I realized that there's not enough um, government funding to sustain these programs forever. So one thing I did coming in here was to work on partnerships that would give um, self-sufficiency to some of our um, clients. Um, opportunities to go back to school free of charge. Um, opportunities to work here. I've I've brought residents into the agency to work and um, get that experience so that they can start coming off these um, programs. But we are wanting to make sure that housing, which is tied to economic development is, um, you know, something that the whole city can be proud of. 
our, the programs I run have a stigma. When you think about public housing and Section 8, those carry with it stigmas. And some parts are true, but we have a lot of people that just needed some support and assistance. But I don't want to make it a lifetime dependency when mm. it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be. So, um, and we want to make sure that we have housing that attracts, you know, um, different people that want to come to Anderson and live. So we have um, aged um, portfolios. We have a lot of um, infrastructure issues here, but we really have beautification issues and pride. We have lack of pride. Mm. So... Mm. We need um, a fresh start. Um, we need some decisions and some practices that we can be proud of. Yeah, so going back to something you were just talking about regarding feeling pride for your community and for the city you live in, I definitely think there are a couple leaders you introduced me to during my time at AU who are trying to invoke that sense of pride in the community. Someone that comes to mind was the city commissioner whose name I'm blanking on now. Um, but he spoke to me about some of the problems that he was facing, his office was facing uh, regarding promoting pride, beautification, et cetera. And some of the issue that stood out to me the most was the Anderson tax sale, a housing tax sale. I don't remember all the implications about it, but I do remember that it had gone online one year. So they were opening up a wider pool of people who could purchase the houses. And what they had noticed was people were buying houses from other states and then basically using the property as a write-off, a tax write-off. So there was no interest in the person living there, moving there, upkeeping the house. But the issue was when the city would try to contact that person, the name of the property would be in the name of a trust and the address would be a P.O. box so they could never be contacted about the status of the property they had purchased for cleaning it up or tearing it down, etc. So um, I know that there was mention about people and some people in California doing that. That's very frustrating because there are leaders in the community like yourself, the city commissioner, et cetera. You guys want to be proud of the city that you live in. You're focused on the beautification, housing, providing people with housing, et cetera. But then you also have these bad actors who may be nameless, faceless people that are buying up these properties for those tax write-off purposes, and no one can do anything about it, and they can't be contacted. Right. That's been a big pet peeve of mine. Um, we, and we have to have, we have to strengthen. We ha I think we have um, regulations on the books or ordinances on the books, but I think we need to do more enforcement um, and, you know, strengthen the arm of, um, of the, of the um, entities here that can hold uh, people accountable if, for, for wanting to use Anderson as a dumping place for, you know, um, 
these things um, that we're not going to allow you just to buy up property that have tax balances and then you just walk away, but you're going to be responsible for the upkeep. You know, there has to be some stronger enforcement and regulations on that because once you start a pattern like that, it starts to deteriorate um, entire neighborhoods and it just drives property values down. And along with all of those things come the other negative connotations that depress um, communities. Yeah, I think to preface with that specific issue with the tax sale, I do believe it was addressed by the city because there, those houses from that tax sale are no longer available online. Again, this information's a couple years old. So I do believe that specific issue's been addressed or it's not a problem any longer. But I do think that there are any number of issues that the city is up against. Uh, I wanted to go back to a point you had made earlier that really stood out to me. It was along the lines of the organization that you're currently working for now, the Anderson Housing Authority. You said uh, you want your clients to get housing. So you're meeting, you're addressing some specific immediate needs for your clients. But then there's also this challenge or invitation to the client to get back on their feet, planning for the future, et cetera. Can you better speak to what that process entails? I'd be interested to hear more about that. So one thing that I think would um, interest you, <clears throat> do you, do you remember where West Campus was at AU? West Campus was- um, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. The little, it had like 12 apartments and it was brown and I think it was a Purdue um, partnership something with Purdue. Mm -hmm. So we partnered with um, Job Source. They're renovating though. They purchased the building Job Source. There's 12 apartments. And these apartments, it, the project is called um, Scholar House. So they take single mothers, um, help them to enroll in school, provide a an apartment for them and different other assistants so that they can get their degree. And that automatically moves them into a whole different level. Um, so we're providing what is called project-based vouchers for those units so that we cover the rent. And all they have to do is go to school, take care of their child and work the program so this has been very successful, but it's a model that was brought here to Anderson showing how um, this organization is working to get more people in school. We, um, again, you know, a lot, a lot of times, you know, I found that people act out when their living conditions are deplorable. So the more, the better we make living conditions, the better people feel about themselves and the better they do. So, but again, we um, are trying to tie some services to the clients. Um, we also have a family self-sufficiency program. It's a great program. Um, it encourages people to work. It encourages 
people, when you get um, promoted, anything over that you would have to pay now that you have a different income will go into an escrow account for you. It helps <coughs> um, our tenants get off the program, possibly buy a home, buy a better car, you know, go to college, those types of things. So we're trying to sew into the clients and not just exist to pay rent. You know, we want to be more than that. So the, the skill set I picked up at the city was working with not-for-profit organizations, such as, you know, Operation Foundation, you know, organizations like that, United Way, all types of just a whole gamut of people. So that, I use that public service experience here so that I could pour resources in and do some creative things that the residents would really um, latch on and start pulling themselves up, you know. So we've been very successful to see some people moving on to get their degrees, moving on to um, buying a home. My um, The work I did with Ivy Tech and trying to get our residents enrolled, um, they made me a, uh, they appointed me as a trustee for Ivy Tech. So that's one thing I do. But one of our residents graduated from high school with me. And this was in 1986. And I was so proud. And he's on our program. He's on our Section 8 program. But to be able to hand him his diploma, me hand it to him, that was a proud day that he took advantage. He graduated with me and that he went back to school because that is something that we offered. And now he's enrolled at um, Indiana Wesleyan. Wow, that's so cool. I was so proud of that, that it just came full circle, you know, seeing our graduates and being the one to say, here you go. Great job. You know? Yeah. It seems like your job's almost more of a mission. You're, you're trying to improve the community, improve the conditions of people's lives and well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do say, I do believe it's, it's ministry. Mm. It is a ministry. Um, so we we have um, a partner come alongside of us. We opened up what is called like a five and dime store. So when the residents do good deeds, they can go into the store and shop. They And these are things that are donated, but they're nice. You know, some things are new. But to take a to get a voucher and be able to go in there and buy shoes and coats and and because you may have paid your rent on time or you've cleaned up around your area or you were caught doing something good and we give you this kind of play money to go and get things you need for your family, um, it's very rewarding. We've had food pantry. We opened up. So we, we're trying mm-hmm. to make the families whole. Yeah. Housing, food, all these, those essentials. What a great incentive to do good. <laughs> We need more programs like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So some of our audience is not familiar with Anderson, Anderson University, or even Indy area for that matter. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is interested in volunteering in the community, but is maybe not sure where to start? 
how would you best recommend that person to get involved or to to help out? I would say um, there's a lot in a lot of communities there are uh, um, trustees, United Ways. Um, if you're a small community, you have a maybe a um, town council. Um, you know, it starts, I started getting involved just within my church and it just kind of blossomed for there, from there. I, I would say I started getting involved in the community in high school. Um, but there's, you know, contact any type of, um, you can look up social service agencies. Um, you can Google that. It'll show you what's in your area. Um, and it's, very rewarding, not in financial compensation, <laughs> uh, but it's so rewarding that you've helped people. Um, one place that's no sh that needs a lot of help, and I believe it's like a pandemic. Well, what's what's a oh no, an epidemic maybe mm -hmm. maybe an epidemic homeless epidemic, an epidemic. It's really starting to blanket communities, um, tent cities, things like that. People have needs, needs of clean clothing, blankets, food, those types of things. Um, I'm, I'm afraid that we're gonna see this for a long time because it's not just that people don't have a place to live. They've decided to drop out of society and say, I'm not gonna follow these governmental rules. I'd rather live in this tent. I don't have to pay utilities. I don't have to pay, you know, center point energy. I don't have to pay uh, taxes, you know. Uh, so if you want to be a rebel, you know, that's the place. So that's cropping up and that's really <laughs> hurting a lot of communities. I mean, I could go down there and physically say, Hey, I've got a place for you. Oh, no, that's okay. We'll stay right here. Yeah, that has to be frustrating. Your job is to provide people with adequate housing. So when someone is intentionally refusing that assistance and chooses to live in a tent, as you were talking about, that has to be very frustrating. Yep. So I would just say um, there's always opportunities to volunteer, but in, you know, just knowing where to start, you can start at church, you can start in a soup kitchen, you can start with the homeless shelter. I know a lot of communities have all of those things. Um, at least one of those things I've mentioned, but um, there's always a need, you know, to serve in any, and anyone can serve, you know, anyone can serve in, in their own way. You don't have to be a professional or knowledgeable on our subject matter expert. You just have to care and um, and have decided within your own heart that you're willing to make some sacrifices of time, of um, resources, and those types of things. I was astounded at AU when I was directing Operation Foundation. We had a steady decline of the number of volunteers we'd have the couple of years preceding me taking that role over as the director. And then in my first year, we had a pretty hefty decrease as well. My second year, we were thankfully able to 
keep it consistent um, as the previous year, consistent numbers of volunteers. One of my biggest struggles when doing that role was simply inspiring people to want to know the other side of town, to want to get to know their neighbor better. You know, people's time are their own. So it's it's a tough sell to say, hey, maybe we could get to know these people on this other side of town and or clean up this park or do this project or do whatever. It's not not as easy to inspire people to give up their time as I was maybe expecting when I took the role. Because you can hang signs, you can have posters, announcements, meetings, whatever you want to have. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, everyone controls their own schedule. <clears throat> Part of my vision that failed was I really wanted to change Operation Foundation from a week of service projects and try to change it more into a year round or at least count school year round at Anderson University and investing in the community and in relationships with people. We were able to do a couple MLK Day projects and there were certain relationships I had with people in the community. So if they reached out to me and said, hey, I need my leaves raked or whatever it might have been, I could gather a group together and we could go out and work on that. But as a whole, um, I'm not sure that it quite met the expectations that I had had for it. I had high hopes for it. Um, I do think I'm maybe being a little critical is probably better than nothing, but I, I, I don't think it was where I wanted to be at when I left. And yeah, but I, I'm very happy with and proud of the relationships that I've made and try to maintain. Um, but even still, it, it was tough to make it a year round interest for students or even myself. I'm a college student. I have other things that I'm working on, but um, I was curious if have you noticed that as well with volunteers? Has the nature of volunteer work changed over time? Yeah. And I think COVID really hurt, um, mm -hmm. really hurt um, workers. I mean, I mean, even people, you know, let alone trying to find someone that's going to give their time. It is hard to even pay people to get to work. Like no one wants to work. There's a major shortage of workers. I think the jobs now outnumber the workers, which is unheard of. What do you think is causing that? I think there was, I just have a simple answer for what I think happened. I think that um, this pandemic was so scary. People panicked and started just throwing money at the problem without really assessing what, you know, what we really need to be doing. We just didn't know enough about it. And it, and it kind of handy handicapped some folks. I mean, it's like they got used to, there's some people that quit their jobs to get the payouts. The unemployment benefits were doubled. And yeah, and if you're able to sit at home and make more than you was on your job, and now people have gotten used to coming back. I mean, they've gotten used to working from home. You've got that working from home. Um, a lot of people want to work from home. And, um, and I know that a lot of people can, but in some spaces, you can't. We, we were 
um, we were, uh, what was the worker thing that, that was called? Essential. 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 Yeah, we mm -hmm. were essential workers, I felt. Like we're not, we are not um, healthcare workers, but people still needed housing services and things like that through, you know, the pandemic. So we couldn't stop working and no one wanted to. The ladies here, some of them said, we're single. We we need to come back to work. We're we're Hello, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Unfortunately, Kim's audio and video had stopped working, so we had to end the call early. But I wanted to thank her again for coming on and being uh, such a great guest and a good friend to have. We hope to definitely have her on again at some point in the future. And please tune in next week for another great episode.